Welcome to another African American Hour. I'm Byron Buckner, bringing you readings from the Kansas City Star, Audiophile Magazine, Consumer Reports, the Associated Press, the New York Times, and History.com. The theme of this program is Preserving the Past. Later, I'll be reading an article about preserving your family's history. But I'm going to start with a reading about preserving historic African American churches. The next story for today's program is titled, Fund to Preserve Assist Black Churches Gets $20 Million Donation. It's from the Associated Press's AP.com website and was written by Jay Reeves. It appeared January 17, 2022. A new effort to preserve historic black churches in the United States has received a $20 million donation that will go to help congregations, including one that was slammed during the tornado that killed more than 20 people in Mayfield, Kentucky last month. Lilly Endowment Incorporated, which supports religious, educational, and charitable causes, contributed the money to the African American Cultural Heritage Action Fund as seed funding for the Preserving Black Churches Project, according to the National Trust for Historic Preservation, which launched the fund. The announcement about the donation from the Lilly Endowment was timed to coincide with the Martin Luther King Jr. National Holiday on Monday. Rather than simply replacing broken windows or straightening rafters, the project will provide assistance with things including asset management and helping historic churches tell their own stories, said Brent Leggs, executive director of the fund. St. James AME Church, founded in 1868, just three years after the Civil War and crumpled by the Mayfield Twister, will receive $100,000 as the first recipient of the project's special emergency funding, Legs said. With its sanctuary virtually destroyed and only 15 or so active members, all of whom are older, St. James AME needs all the help it can get, said the Reverend Ralph Johnson, presiding elder of a church district that includes the congregation. Black churches served a vital role after the war ended and black people no longer were considered the property of white people. Once the slaves were freed, one of the things they wanted to start was a church home. They wanted to work out their spiritual salvation and have a place to congregate, and they also were used as schools and other things, he said. Black churches have been a key element of the African-American community through generations of faith and struggle, and preserving them isn't just a brick-and-mortar issue, but one of civil rights and racial justice legs said in an interview. Historically, black churches deserve the same admiration and stewardship as the National Cathedral in Washington or New York's Trinity Church, he said. Trinity, where Alexander Hamilton and other historic figures are buried, was near ground zero and became a national touchstone after the terror attacks of September 11, 2001. In all, the project plans to assist more than 50 black churches nationwide over the next three years, including some that are vacant or set for demolition or are struggling with inadequate funding, aging members, and dwindling membership. While active congregations are the main priority, Funding can also go to old church buildings that now house projects like community centers or treatment programs, Legs said. It still stewards the legacy of the black church, but for a new purpose, he said. The fund previously has assisted congregations, including Mother Emanuel AME Church, where white supremacists killed nine parishioners during a Bible study in Charleston, South Carolina in 2015, and Bethel Baptist Church in Birmingham, a stalwart of the civil rights movement that was bombed in the 1950s. The Action Fund, which has raised more than $70 million, has assisted with more than 200 preservation projects nationally. 
It was started by the National Trust for Historic Preservation after clashes between white supremacists and protesters during the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia in 2017. The fund calls itself the largest ever attempt to preserve sites linked to African-American history. There is one photograph that goes along with this story. It's a picture of a man in a white short sleeve shirt standing in a street taking a picture of a church that's across the street from him. The caption says, this file photo shows Azar Vandros, capital A-U-S-A-R, capital V-A-N-D-R-O-S-S, taking a photo of Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina on Thursday, June 16, 2016. The church is among those that have been assisted by a fund to help historic black churches and a new $20 million donation will help additional ones. That was the story, Fund to Preserve Assist Black Churches Gets $20 Million Donation. It was written by Jay Reeves. It appeared at the Associated Press's AP.com website on January 17, 2022. In 1926, Carter G. Woodson, who many consider a pioneer in the study of African-American history, wanted a way to bring attention to black history and culture. So he established Negro History Week, which was celebrated the second week of February. Various black communities throughout the U.S. already hosted Douglas Day and Lincoln Day celebrations to honor their work. Negro History Week took place during the second week of February to commemorate the births of abolitionist Frederick Douglass, who claimed February 14th as his birthday, and President Abraham Lincoln, who was born on February 12th. Following is a story that looks at the relationship between Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln. It's from History.com, and the title is Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass, Inside Their Complicated Relationship. It was written by Farrell Evans and was originally published January 27, 2022. The subtitle to the story is The Two 19th Century Leaders Had Deep Respect for Each Other, But One Was Openly and harshly critical. In the middle of the 19th century, as the United States was ensnared in a bloody civil war, President Abraham Lincoln and abolitionist Frederick Douglass stood as the two most influential figures in the national debate over slavery and the future of African Americans. They met together three times in the White House, and while Douglass was at first harshly critical, he ultimately came to view Lincoln as emphatically the black man's president, the first to show any respect for their rights as men. The first time they met in August 1863, Douglas was perhaps the most famous black man in the world. Since escaping from slavery to the North in 1838, he had written two best-selling autobiographies that recounted his journey from a Maryland plantation to lecture halls all over the world as a leading anti-slavery crusader, journal publisher, and champion for African-American rights. With the Civil War in full stride, Douglas was advocating for the unequal treatment of black Union soldiers. In March, he had issued his famous Men of Color to Arms broadside, calling for black men to enlist in the Union Army. Two of his sons had joined the 54th Massachusetts Black Regiment. Douglas was concerned about the unequal pay of black soldiers, who received $3 less per month than white privates. He was also incensed by the Union government's response to the Confederate treatment of black prisoners of war who were being tortured, killed, and sometimes sold into slavery. He focused his anger at President Abraham Lincoln. 
The slaughter of blacks taken as captives, wrote Douglas in his Douglas Monthly, seems to affect him as little as the slaughter of beeves for the use of his army. The first Lincoln-Douglas meeting. On August 10th, Douglas took his concerns directly to the White House, where, uninvited, he later wrote, he elbowed his way up the stairs past all the angry white office seekers waiting in line. The president, listening intently, explained that the conditions black soldiers faced were a necessary concession for men of color to serve. While that was not the answer he sought, Douglas later told Major George L. Stearns, a leading recruiter of black troops, that he admired Lincoln's decency and forthrightness, and that he left their meeting confident that slavery would not survive the war and that the country would survive both slavery and the war. That first encounter launched a complicated relationship that would last through the end of the war and Lincoln's assassination. Douglas had been disarmed to an extent by his host's unpretentiousness and received a political education of a kind, wrote Yale historian David Blight of that first meeting in his 2018 biography, Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom. Lincoln, too, had perhaps learned something of how a black leader felt about the war for their future and the inhumanities they endured to fight it. The president might also have sensed for future reference how his brilliant radical pragmatist sitting with him that morning might be useful to the nation's survival. Douglas attacks Lincoln. None of that stopped Douglas from openly criticizing Lincoln. Even with no official job in government, Douglas wielded considerable influence on the national conversation around slavery, black troop equality, and black emancipation. He did so by traveling the lecture circuit, writing editorials in his Douglas Monthly, giving speeches or writing letters to intimates and government officials. In all those outlets, Douglas vented about the president. He had grown impatient with Lincoln's political foot-dragging on emancipation since the president felt he first had to overcome widespread prejudice and prepare the public mind for its enactment, according to Blight. And Douglas was infuriated over Lincoln's support for colonizing African Americans outside the United States after emancipation. In Douglas Monthly, he castigated the proposal as a reflection of the president's inconsistencies, his pride of race and blood, and his contempt for Negroes and his canting hypocrisy. After siding with the radical Republicans' dump Lincoln movement for the 1864 presidential election and roundly criticizing the president in public for his leniency on the Reconstruction Plan and black suffrage, Douglas was summoned to the White House by Lincoln for a private meeting. No longer a walk-in, he now had a personal invitation from a president facing criticism from every side during a bloody war and worried about his re-election. The second meeting, a plan to rescue enslaved black people. At their second meeting on August 19, 1864, Lincoln pleaded for support and guidance from one of his most vocal critics. Lincoln's main purpose in initiating this meeting was to seek Douglas's advice on how to increase the number of blacks who, in the event that he lost the election, could not be returned to bondage, wrote Columbia University historian Eckert Foner in his 2010 book, The Fiery Trial, Abraham Lincoln and American Slavery. In his third autobiography, Life and Times of Frederick Douglass, the orator wrote that Lincoln asked him to undertake the organizing of a band of scouts composed of colored men whose business should be to go into the rebel states beyond the lines of our armies and carry the news of emancipation and urge the slaves to come within our boundaries. Despite his best efforts and support for several other black leaders, Douglas never got a chance to complete the assignment. It is remarkable that Lincoln suggested such a scheme to Douglas, wrote Blight in his book, Frederick Douglass's Civil War. It would have forced an unprecedented alliance between leadership and federal power for the purpose of emancipation.
at Lincoln's second inaugural, A Man Among Men. After their second meeting, Douglas became a respected advisor to Lincoln. Invited to Lincoln's second inaugural address, Douglas was stunned by the president's eloquence, writing in Life and Times that the 703-word speech sounded more like a sermon than a state paper. Reflecting years later on the White House reception that followed, Douglas conceded that while he looked upon himself as a man, that now in this multitude of the elite of the land, I felt myself a man among men. When Lincoln spotted Douglas in the throng of supporters at the reception in the East Room, he eagerly sought the black leader's response to his address, saying, There is no man in the country whose opinion I value more than yours. Douglas replied, That was a sacred effort. Douglas grieves with the nation. Five days after General Robert E. Lee surrendered his Confederate army to the Union's General Ulysses S. Grant at Appomattox, Virginia, Lincoln was shot by John Wilkes Booth on April 14, 1865, while attending a play at the Ford's Theater in Washington. Douglas heard the news while giving a speech the next day near his home in Rochester, New York. He told his friends and neighbors that this was a day for silence and meditation, for grief and tears. A few years earlier, Douglas had used the lectern to make sharp criticisms about Lincoln's handling of the plight of African Americans. But here he was using his platform to celebrate the fallen leader. That December, in a speech about Lincoln, Douglas lamented how the president's death had robbed African Americans the opportunity to benefit from his guidance in their new lives as freed people. Had Abraham Lincoln been spared to see this day, the Negro of the South would have more than a hope of enfranchisement and no rebels could hold the reins of government in any one of the late rebellious states, Douglas said. Whosoever else have cause to mourn the loss of Abraham Lincoln, to the colored people of the country his death is an unspeakable calamity. Lincoln and Douglas, an uneasy bond. On the 11th anniversary of Lincoln's death in 1876, Douglas delivered a speech at the dedication of the Freedmen's Monument in Washington. His remarks made during the unveiling of a sculpture depicting Lincoln holding out his right hand over a kneeling former slave encapsulated the uneasy bond he had with the 16th president. Pulling no punches, Douglas reminded the diverse audience, including President Ulysses S. Grant, of his disagreements with Lincoln over colonization, the acceptance and treatment of black troops during the Civil War, and the president's conservative reconstruction plan. He was ready and willing at any time during the first years of his administration to deny, postpone, and sacrifice the rights of humanity and the colored people to promote the welfare of the white people of this country, Douglas pronounced. Yet with time, he said, he had come to some appreciation of Lincoln's pragmatism and political savvy. There are some images that go along with this story. First is a sepia-toned photograph of Frederick Douglass. And beside that is a black and white photograph of Abraham Lincoln. The next image is a black and white photograph of hundreds of people standing and sitting in front of the United States Capitol. Some of the men are wearing top hats. There's an American flag jutting out from a balcony waving over the crowd. The caption reads, Abraham Lincoln's second inauguration on March 4, 1865. That was today's feature reading. Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass, inside their complicated relationship. It's from the history.com website and was written by Farrell Evans on January 27, 2022. Next on today's program is a review of an audiobook. The name of the audiobook is Music is History by Quest Love. This review was published in Audiophile Magazine's audiophilemagazine.com website 
and was originally published in December of 2021. This book falls into the category of contemporary culture and takes 11 hours to listen to. Questlove, the band leader of The Roots, The Tonight Show Band, chooses one pop song from each of the past 50 years and gives his take on how it relates to other songs, his growth as a musician, and the headline cultural events of that year. His knowledge of pop music and its creators is substantial and a real treat to hear. He's an industry insider and intelligent observer of music's commercial and artistic arcs. His performance is a comfortable blend of pro-level reading and genuine enthusiasm that is punctuated with tasty sound effects and quotes delivered by an unnamed voice talent. Along with his keen insights on racial politics and culture, his easy-to-hear performance will make listeners feel like they are in the room with personalities and cultural energy of each era. That was a review of the audiobook Music is History by Questlove. This review appeared in Audiophile Magazine's audiophilemagazine.com website. Next up on today's program is a story from the February 7, 2022 edition of the Kansas City Star newspaper. The title of the article is Legendary Coach Maynard Paved Way for Black Educators. It was written by Zach Murdoch. Legendary Johnson County Community College coach Sonny Maynard never set out to break racial barriers across the Midwest. He simply wanted to win baseball and basketball games. He did win, constantly, throughout a star-studded career as a community college player and coach that spanned decades and has landed him spots in five different halls of fame across Kansas, Missouri, and Oklahoma. But in doing so, Maynard also became a trailblazing black educator who paved the way off the field during the civil rights era for generations of black students, athletes, coaches, and school administrators who have followed in his footsteps. What began as an abandoned dream to play basketball at Oklahoma State University, which had desegregated in the early 1950s and did not recruit Maynard even after he was named the most valuable high school player, ultimately led to his groundbreaking role as a founding member of Johnson County Community College and a revered black coach when few other people of color were given the chance. It was the greatest thing that really ever happened to me in my life, Maynard said. Patience pays off. Just being willing to work and wait for your opportunity and then when it comes, then you take advantage. I had loads of experience. Everybody knew who I was but no one was willing to hire me or take a chance on me until we came here. Now 88 years old and finally retired in Olathe, Maynard only recently hung up his softball cleats shortly before the COVID-19 pandemic began. The humble coach reflected this week on Black History Month and his role in the ongoing fight for racial justice across Kansas City. It was a long time coming, but it has finally gotten here, he said. Things are much better. Defeating Segregation Born and raised in Cushing, Oklahoma, Maynard became a standout athlete in baseball and basketball and led his high school basketball squad to the 16-team National Black High School Tournament three years in a row. His basketball skills earned him national recruiting attention, but he still could not break through at Oklahoma State, then known as Oklahoma A&M, Instead, he was convinced to join the then Arkansas City Junior College team across the state line in southern Kansas to play for Coach Dan Kaler, years before Kaler himself became an iconic Kansas City educator in the Northland. 
Maynard was named a two-time All-American at Arc City, now known as Cowley County Community College, and the team ultimately reached number one in the junior college rankings during his tenure. Although he initially struggled to find work in the predominantly white rural town, Maynard's athletic prowess landed him a job coaching local contractor Bob May's semi-pro baseball and amateur athletic union basketball teams. The Mays built Maynard and his wife a home, and with the help of his community college colleagues, he was able to continue his education, including a fateful return to Oklahoma State, where he earned a master's degree in education in 1963. But racial discrimination continued to unsettle Maynard, and he recalled one time a white Oklahoma State classmate tried to bring him to lunch off campus only for the restaurant to refuse to serve Maynard. It surprised his naive friend, but not Maynard. You got used to expecting that, he said last week. During the late 1950s and 60s, however, Maynard also served as recreation director at Winfield State Hospital, where he was inspired by the patients with mental illness and their perseverance. That inspiration led Maynard to help create an annual regional tournament there that became a precursor to the Special Olympics. This gave me an opportunity to look at these kinds of people. Many of them were really, really happy, particularly the mentally ill, he said. I'm saying to myself, what have I got to complain about? These people are happy. Maynard's baseball team took third place in the National Baseball Congress tournament in Wichita, his first year as coach, and both the baseball and basketball teams continued winning throughout the 1960s. At the end of the decade, he even rejoined Cowley County Community College as its assistant basketball coach, the school's first black coaching hire. The success earned Maynard a reputation as a top-tier coach who faced off against an aging Satchel Paige and connected with Buck O'Neill, both of whom became good friends and whom he would later join in Kansas City. Founding Father The biggest step for Maynard came in 1969 when Orville Gregory, the longtime athletic director at Cowley County Community College, was tapped to become athletic director at a new endeavor in the Kansas City area called Johnson County Community College. Gregory tapped Maynard to follow him as an assistant basketball coach and teacher, but the all-white leadership developing the school was skeptical at first of bringing a black man to the still deeply racially segregated metro area. Well, you know, I'm rather ambivalent about hiring this guy, Maynard recalls one of the trustees telling the others with Maynard in the room. He's been on a small scale. Nobody's ever heard of him before. I have one question. If we hire him, where is he going to live? Chief greats Buck Buchanan and Bobby Bell lived in Overland Park and Prairie Village. But few other black families lived on the Johnson County side of the city at that time, and college leaders worried about how the Maynards would be received. I would like to have the job, and if you are willing to give me a chance, Maynard recalled telling the group with a smile, where I'm going to live or stay, that'll be my problem. I think I can handle that. Maynard won the position one of the only black founders of the community college when it was still run out of a church in Merriam. He, his wife, Etna, and his young daughter, Sherelle, moved to Overland Park, and despite college leaders' concerns, Maynard said they were accepted into the community. He was named coach of the college's new Cavaliers baseball team the next year and led the team to 504 victories over the next 14 seasons, including three junior college World Series appearances, in 1974, 1980, and 1984, according to school records. His teams never recorded a losing season, achieved five national rankings, won three regional titles, and 19 of his players went on to be drafted by professional baseball teams. 
Maynard quickly became a beloved member of the Johnson County Community College leadership and came to be the face of the school, so to speak, said Steve Benson, who played for the first Johnson County Community College men's basketball team that Maynard and Gregory coached. Maynard did not highlight that he was one of the only black coaches in the region at the time. He simply set about coaching and winning a lot, Benson said. With Sonny, you know, we're all white Johnson County basketball players. We'd never had any black coaches, Benson said. There really wasn't an issue. He made it so seamless. He was just our coach. The guys all liked him and he really cared for all of us. He just made it easy for who he was working with and the players. They would do anything for him and he would do anything for them, he continued. That's what it's all about anyway. Coaching is teaching and influencing kids and trying to get them on the right track. In 1980, Maynard was selected as a coach for the United States Baseball Federation's Japan-USA All-Star Series held in California and the old Rosenblatt Stadium in Omaha, Nebraska. The team lost his first game against Japan, but won six straight to win the series that year, and then President Jimmy Carter wrote Maynard a letter of congratulations. Maynard was tapped to turn around the college's women's basketball program in 1986 and transformed a winless team into the second-place team in the conference two years in a row, school records show. Hall of Fame In 1992, Johnson County Community College announced it would form a college Hall of Fame and pick just two inaugural inductees, Gregory and Maynard. The honor recognized Maynard's success as both a coach and an original administrator and founder of the college. Cowley County Community College and Southwestern College, where Maynard earned his bachelor's degree, inducted him in their Halls of Fame in 1999 and 2000. And he also has been added to the Conoco AAU in Oklahoma and Missouri Valley AAU Halls of Fame. In his garage this week, Maynard surveyed just a portion of his trophies, plaques, and awards that were enough to fill a half dozen chairs and tables arranged around him. Reams of old newspaper clippings and season programs, along with signed memorabilia from former players, famous athletes, and coaches covered nearly half the roof of one of his family's cars. But the accolades mean less to Maynard than the example he hopes to set for others. I always felt that most important, fundamentally, was to try to lead by example, he said. You can get a lot of things done if you don't complain about everything and just try to lead by example. Maynard's former coach, Kaler, who went on to become the first principal of Oak Park High School and an iconic Kansas City educator, recalled traveling with Maynard in his 2001 book, Successful Schools. Kaler described riotous drives to basketball games with a laughing young Maynard and Lafayette Norwood, who later became a renowned KU basketball coach, and how those conversations underscore the importance of mutually caring relationships between the teachers and students that all three men came to embody. In more than 70 years on this spinning planet, I have never known a nicer person, Kayla recalled, telling the crowd gathered for one of Maynard's Hall of Fame inductions. Maynard smiled, rereading the passage inside his garage last week and credited the vision of leaders like Kayla and Gregory with teaching him that even in the tumult of the civil rights era, Maynard's perseverance could inspire change. He hopes it still does. There's a difference in people, but it's not color, Maynard said. I learned that from these people I was telling you about in Ark City who took me in. They, of course, were white, and I tell you what, 
They were just outstanding people because had it not been for them, I probably wouldn't have been where I am today. There are two images that go along with this story. The first is a picture of Coach Maynard wearing a white and blue plaid shirt and a black Kansas City Monarchs baseball cap. In the background is a pennant that says Japan on it. The caption reads, Now 88 and retired, Sonny Maynard was a founding member of Johnson County Community College and has been inducted into five halls of fame across three states. The next image is a picture of three photographs and one statue. One picture shows Coach Maynard as a young basketball player. The other shows the coach posed wearing a USA baseball uniform. And the last picture shows him in a suit and tie. The statue is of a baseball player swinging a bat. The caption reads, in 1980, Johnson County Community College baseball coach Sonny Maynard was selected to coach in the United States Baseball Federation's Japan-USA All-Star Series. The team lost its first game against Japan, but won six straight to take the series that year. That was the story, Legendary Coach Maynard Paved Way for Black Educators, from the February 7th edition of the Kansas City Star. It was written by Zach Murdoch. Next up in today's program is an obituary from the New York Times. The title of the obituary is Everett Lee, who broke color barriers on the conductor's podium, dies at 105. It was written by David Allen and was published January 20th, 2022. The subheading to this story is he was known as the first black conductor on Broadway and the first to conduct a white orchestra in the South. Mr. Lee went on to a successful career in Europe. Everett Lee, a conductor who broke down racial barriers, but then fled the prejudice that black classical musicians faced in the United States to make a significant career in Europe, died on January 12th at a hospital near his home in Malmö, Sweden. He was 105. His daughter Eve confirmed the death. Already a concertmaster leading white theater orchestras by 1943, Mr. Lee made a significant breakthrough on Broadway when he was appointed music director of Leonard Bernstein's On the Town in September 1945. The Chicago Defender called him the first black conductor to wave the baton over a white orchestra in a Broadway production. In 1953, Mr. Lee conducted the Louisville Orchestra in Kentucky, a nerve-shredding afternoon for him because of the lack of sufficient rehearsal time and the pressure of history. United Press reported that Mr. Lee's concert was one of the first at which a black man led a white orchestra in the South. Other outlets went further, claiming that it was the very first. The critic for the Courier-Journal in Louisville said that Mr. Lee had made a most favorable first impression. In 1955, shortly after Marian Anderson made her debut at the Metropolitan Opera, Mr. Lee conducted the New York City Opera another first. His first wife, Sylvia Olden Lee, a vocal coach, had been appointed the first black musician on the Met staff around that time. Not only was his conducting expert in all his technical aspects, a New York Times critic wrote of his La Traviata, but it was informed with musicianship and an exceptionally keen grasp of the character of the opera. Despite those breakthroughs, racism constrained Mr. Lee's U.S. career, but he refused to let it define his work. A Negro standing in front of a white symphony group, the artist manager Arthur Judson asked him in the 1940s, Declining to sign him up, according to Sylvia Olden Lee, no, I'm sorry. Mr. Judson suggested that Mr. Lee follow other black musicians into exile abroad. 
Mr. Lee didn't leave at first, but he eventually did so in 1957 and prospered in Germany, in Colombia, and especially in Sweden, where he succeeded Herbert Blumstead as music director of the Norrköping Symphony Orchestra from 1962 to 1972. Mr. Lee frequently said that he longed to return to the United States, but would do so only to become the music director of a major orchestra. I did not have very much hope at home, despite some success, he told the Atlanta Constitution in 1970, explaining that racism was less a factor in his life and work in Europe. It would be nice to work at home. I'm an American. Why not? If he could make it in Europe, he concluded, I should be able to make it here. Only one top ensemble, the Oregon Symphony, has ever given such a post to a black conductor, James DePriest. Everett Astor Lee was born August 31, 1916, in Wheeling, West Virginia, the first son of Everett Denver Lee, a barber, and Mamie Amanda Blue Lee, a homemaker. He started playing violin at age eight, and his talent prompted the family to move to Cleveland in 1927. Mr. Lee ran track in junior high a few years behind the Olympian gold medalist Jesse Owens and led the Glenville High School Orchestra as concertmaster. He came under the mentorship of the Cleveland Orchestra's conductor, Arthur Rodzinski capital R-O-D-Z-I-N-S-K-I, after a chance meeting at the hotel where Mr. Lee worked as an elevator operator. He studied at the Cleveland Institute of Music with the Cleveland Orchestra's concertmaster, Joseph Fuchs, capital F-U-C-H-S. After graduating in 1941, Mr. Lee enlisted in the Army and trained to become a Tuskegee Airman in Alabama, but he injured himself and was released. He moved to New York in 1943 to play in the orchestra for Carmen Jones, an Oscar Hammerstein rewrite of George Bizet's Carmen that had an all-black cast but a primarily white orchestra. When the conductor was snowed in early in 1944, Mr. Lee stepped from the concertmaster's chair to conduct Bizet's music. Spells conducting the Gershwin's Porgy and Bess followed, before Bernstein hired him as concertmaster and later music director of On the Town. In an era of Jim Crow segregation in performance, the musicologist Carol J. Oha, capital O-J-A, has written, Lee's appointment was downright remarkable. Mr. Lee then played in the violin section of the New York City Symphony for Bernstein, who arranged a scholarship to Tanglewood in 1946. Mr. Lee studied conducting there where Sergei Kusevitsky, capital K-O-U-S-S-E-V-I-T-Z-K-Y, of the Boston Symphony and conducted the Boston Pops in 1949. Like most young people, he told the New York Amsterdam News in 1977, I thought I could go out and conquer the world. But there was a color line he could not cross. Rodzinski, now conductor of the New York Philharmonic, refused to let Mr. Lee audition for the orchestra's violin section, knowing the inevitable result. Hammerstein considered him for a touring production, but told him that if a colored boy is the conductor and we go into the South, it would cause an uproar and bookings would be canceled. Mr. Lee responded by creating in 1947 the Cosmopolitan Little Symphony, an integrated ensemble that rehearsed in Harlem's Grace Congregational Church. It made its downtown debut with him on the podium at Town Hall in May 1948 with a bill that included the premiere of Brief Elegy by Ulysses K., one of the many black composers Mr. Lee programmed during his career. By 1952, the Cosmopolitan was giving a concert performance of Giuseppe Verdi's La Forza del Destino before 2,100 people at City College with the Mets' Regina Resnick as Leonora. My own group is coming along fairly well, Mr. Lee wrote Bernstein, suggesting that it may be the beginning of breaking down a lot of foolish barriers. But starting any ensemble was hard then, let alone an integrated one. 
Recruitment had been difficult because trained black musicians now believed that there was no future in achieving high standards of proficiency, Mr. Lee wrote in the Times in December 1948. Despite signing with the New York City Opera staff in 1955, he left for Europe. In 1957, he moved to Munich, where he founded an orchestra at the America House and led a traveling opera company. Guest spots came quickly. He led the Berlin Philharmonic in June 1960, one of many European dates. Like Dean Dixon, a black conductor who led the Gothenburg Symphony from 1953 to 1960, Mr. Lee found sanctuary in Sweden. He maintained an ambitious repertoire in Norrköping, performing operas from Aida to Porgy, conducting vast quantities of Swedish music with Hans Eklund's Music for Orchestra, a favorite, and often collaborating with jazz musicians led by the saxophonist Arne Domnerus, capital A-R-N-E, capital D-O-M-N-E-R-U-S. It was a balance of new and old, local and otherwise, that Mr. Lee repeated as chief conductor of the Bogota Philharmonic from 1985 to 1987. Even so, he quite gave up on U.S. orchestras and he started to make guest appearances again. The inescapable conclusion is he should be around more often the critic Theodore Strongen of the Times wrote in 1966. In 1973, Mr. Lee took command of the Symphony of the New World, a New York ensemble that was founded in 1965 as an integrated orchestra like his now defunct Cosmopolitan. After an association with the Philadelphia-based Opera Ebony, he took a last bow with the Louisville Orchestra in 2005. Although black conductors like Mr. DePriest, Paul Freeman, and Henry Lewis had become more prominent in the 1970s, Mr. Lee saw little real improvement. There has been no major change in my field, he told the Afro-American newspaper in 1972. Orchestra companies feel if they had a black orchestra leader last year, they don't need one this year. He fulfilled a dream of conducting the New York Philharmonic on the birthday of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King in 1976, leading a program of Sergei Rachmaninoff, Gene Sibelius, and David Baker's Cosbro, short for Keep On Steppin' Brothers. Mr. Lee's first marriage ended in divorce. He married Kristen Anderson in 1979. She and Eve Lee, his daughter from his first marriage, survive him, as do a son from his second, Eric Lee, two granddaughters and one great-granddaughter. Despite the barriers he faced, Mr. Lee said in an interview published in 1997 that he was not bitter. He recalled being denied violin auditions at two major U.S. orchestras. I then made up my mind that if I can't join you, then I will lead you, he said. I did make good on that promise to myself. These two orchestras that denied me even an audition I have conducted. I just had to. I just had to show them that I was there. There are a couple of photos that go along with this obituary. The first is a black and white photo of Everett Lee as he stands in front of an orchestra conducting. He has a baton in his hand. The caption reads, Everett Lee in 1966. He blazed a trail for black conductors, established an integrated orchestra, and found success as a maestro in Europe. The next black and white photo is of Everett Lee and a woman. Lee is sitting and playing a piano. The woman is standing beside him singing. They are both focused on the sheet music that is on the piano. Lee is wearing a suit and tie. The woman is wearing a dark, long-sleeved dress and is adorned with a string of pearls around her neck. The caption reads, Mr. Lee with the soprano Virginia McWaters preparing for a concert of the Cosmopolitan Little Symphony at Town Hall in New York City in 1948. The next image is a color photo of three men and three women. They are all grasping a long red ribbon. 
Everett Lee is in the middle wearing a tux with a black bow tie. The caption reads, Mr. Lee took part in a ribbon-cutting ceremony for the Marian Anderson Theater in New York in 1994. With him were the soprano Jesse Norman, the jazz drummer and composer Max Roach, the soprano Martina Arroyo, and city councilwoman C. Virginia Fields. That was the New York Times obituary. Everett Lee, who broke color barriers on the conductor's podium, dies at 105. It was written by David Allen and was originally published January 20th, 2022. Next is today's featured reading. It's from consumerreports.org. The title is How to Preserve Family Photos, Videos, and Memories for Future Generations. The subtitle is In Honor of Black History Month, we ask African-American museum experts and family historians for their best advice and tips. It was written by Melanie Pinola and was originally published online February 11th, 2022. Our most prized possessions often don't have much resale value. They're simple things like an old family photo, a letter, or even a story passed down at the dinner table. But if not properly preserved, they can easily be lost forever. Fortunately and unfortunately, trauma has helped to preserve my family's photos, says Jules Singletary, a wellness coach who made a short documentary tracing her lineage from rural Georgia back to her great-great-great-maternal-grandmother's original ethnic group in Cameroon. Singletary's aunts and older cousins have been reluctant to share records because many of the memories involve people who died untimely and tragic deaths, and they didn't want to trigger grief for other family members. That meant keeping family photos, videos, and documents tucked away where they were rarely handled. But during the pandemic, everyone started realizing how precious these memories are, and if they don't pass them down, we will lose them, Singletary says. I started asking questions during our monthly family Zoom calls, and it opened Pandora's box. Those conversations led to one of Singletary's most cherished and oldest finds, a photo from the 1940s that had been locked away for decades. It shows four generations of family members at their home in Harlem, including her great-great-great-grandfather, William Drake, who was born in 1865, the year the Civil War ended. So it's super special that we have a picture of him, Singletary says. I used nitrite gloves when handling the photo. It is very delicate and the photo paper is thinning. You never know what you'll find when you start talking to family members about their stories or digging through boxes of photos, documents, and ephemera that have been collecting dust. But once you do, it's important to think about how to preserve and share what you uncover. Later, if you've preserved it properly, someone is going to come across it and know that it's special, says Vanessa Cogdale-Moore, who oversees the Save Our African American Treasures program at the National Museum of African American History and Culture, NMAAHC, in Washington, D.C. On an average day before the pandemic, Anywhere from 20 to 60 people would visit the museum for the program bringing photos, quilts, uniforms, recipes, and other items to learn how to best preserve the artifacts and, most important, the stories behind them. We asked museum experts, including Cogdale Moore and family historians like Singletary, to share tips and strategies for safeguarding your family's memories for decades or even centuries. Getting started. 
The first step is always to do it now, wherever you need to start, says Dorothea Williams, director of the Center for the Digitization and Curation of African American History, part of NMAAHC. Here are tips on how to begin. One, be prepared emotionally. When you dig through decades' worth of documents, it can stretch you mentally, emotionally, and physically, Singletary says. Be patient with yourself and others through the process. You might set out to celebrate the best parts of your family's past, experts say, but come across items that remind you of difficult times or great losses. Acknowledging that possibility will prepare you for what might be an emotional journey. Two, interview the oldest person in your family. Many family stories haven't been yet captured on paper, film, or other media. They live in the heads of relatives. If you're fortunate to have grandparents or other elders you can interview, now's the time to reach out. Williams learned from her grandfather that his grandfather had served in the Civil War, and after doing some research, she was surprised to find her great-great-grandfather's name etched on the African-American Civil War Memorial a few blocks from her D.C. home. My grandfather passed when he was 102, she says, and that's one of the best conversations we ever had. StoryCorps, a nonprofit organization that helps people preserve their stories through interviews, offers lists of questions to ask. For example, what are the most important lessons you've learned in your life? And do you remember any of the stories your favorite relatives used to tell you? If you'd like to record the conversation for posterity, you can use the StoryCorps mobile app or video conferencing tool. Both provide the option of uploading the audio to the Library of Congress if you and your interview partner wish. Three, use local libraries, preservation societies, and other community resources. Try to follow up oral tradition with research that expands the story. Over a casual lunch with her grandmother, author and genealogist Bernice Bennett learned that her great-great-grandfather owned 160 acres of land in Louisiana after the Civil War, a surprise given that he formerly had been enslaved. That led Bennett down a 15-year journey to gather documentation to verify what she had uncovered and learn more about her family. If you're delving into your family's history, follow every lead and study the community, Bennett says. She went to county courthouses, reviewed U.S. Census records, studied land entry papers from the National Archives in D.C., and searched through old newspapers. While doing so, she met relatives she didn't know existed and helped capture more of her family's stories. Curating and Restoring Family Artifacts What do you do with all the material you've gathered? Curate the collection like a museum archivist would. Be selective. I would encourage people to take the time to identify what's valuable in their possession, says Cockdale Moore, because everything doesn't have the same intrinsic value. Think about items you have by asking, is this something I want to pass down for future generations? That doesn't mean that you should toss everything that doesn't fit that description, but prioritize preserving the things that will have lasting emotional and historical resonance. Five, label everything. Professional photographer and teacher Don Orkoski has extensively researched his own family history. He suggests identifying the names of people in the photos and, if possible, recording more information, too. What are they doing here in this photo? Was it a birthday, a wedding, etc.? Get the story because that brings the photo to life.
Good labeling also helps future generations. You never know, Orkoski says. You might have that photo from Frank's wedding and by knowing the names of the people in the photo, some far-off relative 80 years from now might recognize the name of a great-aunt who attended the wedding and appears in no other family photos. If pieces of the puzzle are missing, recruit other family members to help get the information you need. 6. Restore what you can. You can retouch or restore old photos in software like Adobe Photoshop, says Consumer Reports social media program manager David Morgan. After his father died in 2017, Morgan took to scanning old photos of his parents as a process of mourning and remembrance. In Photoshop, he removed some of the wear marks and boosted the colors. If you're not comfortable doing that work yourself or you need more than software to restore an item, you can hire a conservation professional. For help in finding one, use the membership search at the American Institute for Conservation. Future Proofing I really wish everyone would preserve their family's history, Orkoski says, because we all end up being stories in the end, and each one of those stories is worth so much to so many people who haven't been born yet. Although we might not be able to make anything persist forever, many photos, documents, and other items have lasted for centuries. Here are a few tips to put the odds in your favor. 7. Use archival quality materials. When storing old photos and documents, make sure you house them in museum quality or archival acid-free folders and boxes. The Library of Congress offers instructions on the safe care, handling, and storage of books, paper, photographs, scrapbooks and albums, newspapers, comic books, motion picture film, records, magnetic tape, optical discs, and other items. According to the NMAAHC, here are five key things to keep in mind. Avoid bright or direct light. Maintain a consistent temperature, one the average person would feel comfortable in year-round. Keep objects clean, but clean them with care. Remove dust with a soft, lint-free cloth and avoid harsh commercial cleansers or solvents. Guard against insects and pests. Avoid excess moisture. Don't store items in the basement or anywhere else where humidity or mold are common. Many museums, historical societies, libraries, and even churches have programs that allow you to bring in items for advice on the best way to preserve them. Call around to see what's available. 8. Make digital copies. All of the experts we interviewed emphasized the importance of digitizing your photos, film, audio recordings and documents, and saving the originals. To digitize printed material, you can use a dedicated scanner, an all-in-one printer, or even a smartphone. Because hardware can become obsolete, anyone remember the zip disk or Betamax? And physical media can degrade over time. It's also critical to save digital copies to the most current formats, and storage media. For example, if you have files on CDs, transfer them to your computer, an external hard drive, or the cloud, since CD players are growing less common. Always start with the source material, Orkoski says. If you got an 8mm film reel that was converted to VHS, then transferred to a DVD, don't just copy the contents of the DVD. Find a service that can take that 8mm and imprint it digitally and possibly even enhance it. 9. Back it all up. If you don't have a backup system in place yet, 
Now is the time to set one up. Ideally, you'd store copies of your files in three places. Think computer, an external hard drive, and a cloud service, for example. That protects you if your computer dies or gets stolen, as well as if a natural disaster hits home. Since hard drives have a limited lifespan, it's a good idea to check your drive's health once in a while, say when you change the clocks for daylight savings time or if your computer is starting to feel sluggish. Some hard drive manufacturers provide their own tools, but you can use your computer's built-in utilities instead. On Mac, open Disk Utility, then open First Aid, then open Verify Disk. On Windows, type CMD into the search bar to open Command Prompt. Then type WMIC Disk Drive Get Status. 10. Share with your family and the community. Finally, don't keep all this work to yourself. Sharing your collection and making it accessible to others can deepen the connections you have with family members. On a practical note, copies you make for them also serve as backups and help the artifacts live on after you're gone. Consider making a ritual passing things down or going over family heirlooms at holiday get-togethers. For exhibiting photos and other files remotely, you can create a shared family photo on Google Drive, OneDrive, or Dropbox. Many museums, historical societies, and other organizations may be interested in your personal and family records too, including photos, letters, and other materials, even if your family members aren't famous. Archivists and preservationists use items like those to capture details from different times and places. Besides the benefit of contributing to your community's collective memory, an item donated to an organization can be professionally preserved and secured. The contents of the records will be made accessible to you, your family members, and researchers in future years. You can start with a historical society in the community where your family lived or a museum that focuses on specific experiences such as NMAACH. There are several images that go along with this story. The first photo illustration is a collage made up of pictures of two women, a man and twin girls dressed up in matching coats and bonnets. The next image is a black and white photo of a family. Some are sitting on a couch, the rest are standing around the couch. There are 11 people in the snapshot, which is cracked and torn on the corners. The caption reads, this family photo shot in the 1940s in Harlem was saved and scanned by Jules Singletary. The next image is of a family records page from a Bible. Names, dates of birth, and places of birth are written on the page. The caption reads, A record kept in an old family Bible helped Bernice Bennett discover the birth date of her great-great-grandfather, Peter Clark. The next picture shows two men dressed in suits. One is sitting and the other is standing beside him. The caption reads, Peter Clark, seated, with his son Moses, circa 1906 in Livingston Parish, Louisiana. Next is a pair of images showing the before and after effects of photo restoration and preservation. The picture is of a couple. The man is in a tuxedo and the woman is wearing a long white formal dress. The caption reads, 
Consumer Reports staffer David Morgan used Photoshop to restore this 1969 photo of his parents, Maurice Rick Morgan and Tina Morgan, at their high school prom. The next image is a picture of an old government document. The title on the document page reads, Agreement with Freedmen. The caption reads, Bennett discovered this Freedman Bureau labor contract from 1868 for her ancestor Peter Clark on the Cox Plantation. The last image is another collage. There are pictures of a man, a woman, and a girl in the collage. The caption reads, Jill Singletary made this collage of herself and her grandparents in 1988. That was the story, How to Preserve Family Photos, Videos, and Memories for Future Generations, written by Melanie Pinola, and is from ConsumerReports.org and was originally published February 11, 2022. That's all the time we have for the African American Hour. Rosemarie will be here next week. I'm Byron Buckner. Thanks for joining me.